0: 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You know the type all too well. Young Hollywood stars with too much time on their hands and too much money in their pockets and too little self-control over their passions. Saddled with incessant media scrutiny, we watch as their sad lives unravel before our very eyes. Drugs and alcohol scandalous affairs, broken relationships, bitter divorces, run-ins with the law, and just as painful as the ever-present celebrity interview, revealing the shallowness, the emptiness, the rudderless depravity of so many of these emaciated souls. These people live, it seems, on perpetual vacation the boredom of which is punctuated by one self-inflicted trial after another. I am sure you know wherever I speak. And it's against this nauseating backdrop that the career of actress Angelina Jolie proves most interesting. Reading in a Newsweek article recently, she admitted to the reporter that her Hollywood lifestyle left her utterly empty. Then she chose to strike out on a different path, devoting her life to social activism in third world countries. Think of her life against the backdrop of Hollywood. She now travels the world and also serves on influential committees in Washington, D.C., pouring out her life and brokering her influence in behalf of the downtrodden of this world. What struck me in this article is that her life, in some respects, is just as difficult and just as painful as it was when she was unraveling on perpetual vacation in Hollywood. It's just that the nature of those trials has changed dramatically. There was a day when all of her capacities were riveted to dealing with the trials and disappointments of her own navel-gazing life. Today, her capacities are drained by the trials and disappointments of her advocacy in behalf of the needy. Let's take these two paths and just use them as application to the Christian life. Which of these two life orientations best describes your life as a follower of Jesus Christ? As we take some honest assessment, are your energies largely spent dealing with the setbacks and trials of your quest to live a comfortable life? We don't live, by God's grace, anything like some of the Hollywood people that we're thinking about, whose lives are falling apart at the seams because of, there's no purpose. But as you look at your life, are your energies largely spent dealing with the setbacks of the life that you would hope would be. A life of freedom. A life where nothing goes wrong. A life where you cruise along and accomplish all of your goals in life. And that's really what the trial is, is those setbacks. It seems that the largest crisis many Christians in this culture seem to face are crises such as marital struggle. Problems with children. Ill health, a house that falls apart and a car that doesn't act right, and neighbors that cause difficulty and problems at work and difficulties with money and loneliness and depression and vice and the death of a loved one. Each of these significant trials on different levels. They're real pain, they're real difficulty in a sin-cursed world. And we all deal with these in some respect. But this is really the whole burden, for some it would seem. They go to church, they read their Bible, they pray, they tithe, they grow in Christ, they make progress through life. But the orientation of their lives is toward their own comfort and well-being, such that the only real trials, the only real anxieties they will ever experience are setbacks to their own ease in this life. And I would call us today, this morning, to face squarely the reality that God calls us to a very different life. He calls His people to a life oriented to spreading the knowledge of Christ and influencing needy sinners. We are called to structure our lives so that they directly serve God's sovereign purposes to save and to transform sinners by faith in the gospel. Follow me here. I think indeed that this orientation should evidence itself in our suffering trial and anxiety and exhaustion in the outworking of our labors to influence others for Christ. I draw this thesis from the words of the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's second epistle to the Corinthian church. I think a little bit of context is perhaps in order. This is a letter that is really pulsating with issues and with relationship, and it's tough for us to catch all of that. In fact, there's much that we don't know about the background of this letter. It is so personal, it's so pointed, it is so alive with issues that we really don't see it all. But we do know this, that Paul founded the Corinthian church on his second missionary journey, Acts 18, and he ministered there for a year and a half. Now, we know that the Corinthian church had issues. This church was, frankly, a mess. And Paul had to go back on other occasions and wrote several letters, some that are not left, they're not extant, they're not uh, present for us today to read. But Paul, after he made what he called a painful visit, chapter 2 and verse 1, Return to Ephesus, and from there sends what he calls a severe letter by the hand of Titus. Now put yourself in Paul's place. There's been this painful visit back to Corinth because of the reception of Paul, and there's opposition to his leadership. There are, in fact, very eloquent, polished speakers in the assembly who don't like Paul. And they're undermining his authority and saying he's really no apostle at all. Could an apostle speak this way? Without such sophistication as we use. And they attacked his schedule and his plan to get to Corinth, and he wasn't there. So Paul's dealing with these people who are ridiculing and angry with him, and having just completed this difficult visit, he now sends a severe letter. And he's very anxious. Verse 12 of chapter two, Second Corinthians 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. We need to unpack these verses for a bit. Troas, think of this now, Paul is in Ephesus and he moves to Troas. He moves there because he wants to link up with Titus and hear how the Corinthian church responded to his severe letter. We have in the original text here, the Troas. The article is used indicating that this is where he and Titus had planned to meet, and chapter 7 will confirm that. Troas is a bustling Roman port city. It's an ideal place for the two of them to meet. As Titus journeys across to the east, across the Aegean Sea, and Paul by land from Ephesus to Troas, they're going to link up here. But there in Troas, while he waits, there's a door that's open for him, which is a phrase meaning that the gospel had an excellent opportunity in this place. In fact, he leaves, you notice there, in verse 13, them. Paul seems so distracted in this letter at times that he really doesn't fill in the blanks, and you're left scrambling to figure out who's them He has not even talked about anybody here. But apparently in Troas, there were people who were responsive to the gospel. And he says, there's a great opportunity here. He's gone from Ephesus, a great opportunity, despite all the trials that he faces there with opposition. It's a great opportunity for the gospel. He comes now to Troas, and people are hearing the gospel. Now, what do you know about Paul? How often do you know the Apostle Paul turning his back on a great opportunity for the gospel? That's just not in his nature. But that's exactly what he does. It is his love for the Corinthians that compels him to leave Troas. And by leaving Troas, Paul silences the criticism that he does not care for these people. Now why does he leave Troas? This is where he's supposed to meet Titus. That's the whole point. Titus doesn't show up. Put yourself there. This is a day of no telecommunications. There's no laptops, there's no cell phones. In fact, I think cell phones take away many opportunities to exercise our faith. One day passes and another and another and Titus doesn't show. And Paul is worried about these Corinthian believers. It reminds me here just recently, some weeks ago in Mozambique, we crossed over into the border to minister to people there in a very rugged area, a very dangerous area. We didn't speak the language. We walk inside the border, leaving our, our vehicle behind, and we were forgotten at the border. There's no electricity. There's no telephones. There's no way to communicate with anybody that's out there. And I was reminded of the great privilege that not having a cell phone provides for the exercise of our faith. You can't contact anybody. You don't know where they are. You don't know, in fact, if they're alive or dead. And you wait. And you wait. And I found an hour and a half a pretty excruciating experience. Imagine where Paul's at. No idea where Titus is. The days are passing. He becomes so anxious for the Corinthian believers, so anxious to meet with Titus, that he turns his back on Troas, that's just kind of a hard concept right there all in of itself. We'll get back to it in a moment. But he leaves Troas to go to Macedonia to get closer to where Titus is to try to meet him there. Now there's some implications here I think we really need to consider. No superior love is shown here for the lost over the saved. Paul could have very easily said, you know what? The Corinthians have professed faith in Jesus Christ. They're saved. I can't worry about them. I've got to stay here at Troas where there's a great open door for me. He doesn't say that. He shows the very same intensity and passion and love for the Corinthians who have already professed faith as he does for people in Troas to whom he's ministering the gospel. Is this a lack of faith on Paul's part? Perhaps it is. I don't know how God would determine this. Things certainly would have worked out better had he stayed, it would seem, from a human standpoint, right? We find later, Titus is just fine. He's on his way. He's been delayed. But he's just fine and he's going to meet Paul in Troas. And Paul could have been ministering there for a longer period of time and leading more people to Christ, it would seem. Maybe Paul blows it here. We'll leave that with God and Paul. One thing that we do see is that Paul loved people enough that he was passionate enough and he was passionate enough about the gospel to get uptight. There was real, live anxiety in his heart for the people of God. Notice chapter 7. In verse 5, we read into some of that anxiety. Paul's in such a hurry here in chapter 2. He really doesn't fill in the details until he gets to chapter 7. But chapter 7 and verse 5, we read, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. There's a man in anxiety. A man who's sweating the details about the growth of God's people. But, verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, who's the downcast? That's Paul, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. He finally came. Go back to chapter 1, in verses 8 and 9. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we read, Therefore we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul seems to be indicating here that there was growth in his faith as he dealt with these trials and these heartaches and these difficulties. All in the line of the gospel. And now back to chapter 2. So joyous was Paul's remembrance of his reunion with Timothy that he does not even take time to stop and fill in the details. He simply bursts forth in thanksgiving, chapter 2 and verse 14. But thanks be to God. Verse 13, I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave and went into Macedonia, and thanks be to God. Chapter 7, we learn that he found him. Plummer calls verse 14, a noble digression of irrepressible gratitude. Paul finds Titus in Macedonia. He receives from him a relatively good report about the Corinthians response to his letter, to Paul's great relief. Back to 7 and verse 6. Chapter 7 and verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. 7, 7. And not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you, as He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You understand His point. I hate the thought that I brought pain to your heart, but I rejoice in Christ that it led you to repentance. I can see some sophisticated Christians coming in here and saying, Paul, would you just relax? Settle down. All this anxiety and all of this upheaval and all of this pain of the heart and all of this rejoicing and thrill and excitement, just relax a little. I doubt that Relax and Paul went together very often, frankly, from viewing these letters. But what you have to love in his heart is the intensity that he has for the gospel. The intensity that he has for the people of God to see them grow and mature in the faith. He simply bursts forth with joy in what God has done. But there is more behind it than simply the success on the external There is, I think, in this whole relationship with the Corinthians and their repentance as he sends his letter, there is a sense that in that, this is a small microcosm of a much bigger picture. Paul is reminded by the triumph won with the Corinthians of the cosmic triumph of the gospel. Verse 14, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. No matter how difficult the trials, no matter how intense the anxiety, the believer always walks in the victory of Christ. And we need to bring this to ourselves and to embrace this reality. Everywhere that we go in this fallen world, there will be resistance to the gospel message There will be difficulties in seeing believers grow in the faith and face the truths of God's Word and submission to them. This will not be an easy route, but what we must always remember is that we walk in the triumph of Jesus Christ in this fallen world. We cannot lose sight of it. There's a beautiful picture in background here. It probably is based upon the Roman triumphus, In fact, the original text would read that he leads us about in triumphal procession. If your translation reads that he causes us to triumph, I think there's certainly that idea here, but it's not a good reflection of the original text. He leads us in triumphal procession. What's that talking about? When a Roman general met a very stringent list of qualifications, of criteria for military victory, he was awarded a triumphus. A triumph along a special route in the streets of Rome. Something that might be akin today to a ticker tape parade. The order of the procession was very carefully laid out. It was something of a parade. First came the city magistrates and the senators into the city of Rome as the people lined the streets and began to cheer After the magistrates and the senators came the trumpeters announcing to anybody who was asleep or living under a rock that there was a great day here. And people would begin to run to the streets and assemble on the side. And after the trumpeters came the spoils of war, captured from the enemy. In fact, one Roman general actually brought some of the pieces from the temple in Israel at this very place in his triumph. Then came a white ox for sacrifice And then came the highest-ranking captives and their guards being paraded on the streets. And you can imagine it wasn't a real happy day for them as they're passing the streets and know that their time on this life isn't very long. After And along with their guards, they are the next in line. And then came the musicians dancing and playing. And then the priests swinging censers with their incense. And then came... The guest of honor, the great general, clad in purple and standing on a chariot drawn by four horses, receiving the accolades of the people who gathered and rejoiced in another great victory of Rome. With the general often were his sons walking behind his chariot, something perhaps akin to today's uh athletes as they win some championship you'll see them often carrying their little kids in their arms or having their kids around them this is his time of triumph he brings around him the family that is closest to him and last of all comes the victorious army marching through the streets apparently so the general's not an afterthought at the end of the whole thing and everybody's ready to go home by the time he gets there The crowds lining the way cheer and there are clouds of incense rising from the spectators as well as from the priests. That pungent aroma fills the streets and there is a day of great victory and celebration. This is what Paul is saying to us Christian. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you have come to place your saving faith in His death and resurrection, you have been born again through this gospel. You march through life in triumphal procession. He has won the victory over death and Satan and sin. He has won for us salvation. And we walk in His triumphal procession. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it, in the cross. His triumph is in Christ. That is the spiritual sphere in which the Christian lives. We are in union with Christ, a major theme in Paul. And it takes faith to live in that procession. Faith not only to come to saving faith, but faith to see it. We are so pushed aside by this world, and we so quickly forget who we are in Jesus and who truly reigns in this world. Christ reigns, He rules, He has won the victory, and we walk in His procession. And as we do, we note here in verse 14 that we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. We spread it. This is an interesting word. It's often translated manifest or reveal. It's usually used in an eschatological sense. The coming of Christ will be revealed. But here it speaks of the proclamation of the gospel. We reveal, we make manifest the truth of Christ crucified and risen. We show it out to others. And as we do, we are a fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Now, why did people create perfume? It's to hide other smells that aren't as pleasant. But they create perfume not to hide in some corner, but it's it's to fill the atmosphere, it's to gain attention, it's to bring pleasure. I remember working in a warehouse during seminary, and there was a retail place out in the front, and there was a famous woman who would come in to the retail shop from time to time, hawking her wares of perfume. And uh, she was sort of famous because we always knew she was there before you ever saw her. Yeah, I don't know how this is possible, to put that much perfume on one body. But before she came through the door, the perfume arrived. It announced her presence, and she was trying to sell us. She'd often come at times when we were supposed to buy things for our, our wives and girlfriends and the like. But she's using that fragrance to get your attention, To bring pleasure. In fact, it was the nicest thing we ever smelled there. It wasn't a really pretty place. That's what perfume is for. Fragrance is to bring that pleasure and, in some respect, to gain attention. Now, it can be overdone, and the analogy can be overdone. I think she overdid it. But uh, she she was a salesperson and was doing her job, apparently. I remember it 20 years later. But we are to go into this world in a similar way as the fragrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a really stinky world. To bring that message and that beauty to others. As verse 15 continues, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. There seems to be the sense here that we are the aroma of that God receives, that there is a pleasure in God as He sees us share the gospel of Christ. But we are the aroma to others as well. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance of life to life. It's not hard to see here the connection to the Roman triumph. The fragrance spelled death To the captives who were executed, some believe they were marched into the Circus Maximus. At times they were, and would be made to fight wild beasts. To the conquering army, what was that same fragrance? That same fragrance was the savor of life and victory and joy. They were walking in the train of the great general. For them it was a pleasing odor. So to those dead in sin who reject the message of the gospel, our proclamation of God's truth further confirms them in their lifeless path to destruction. To those alive in Christ, that same knowledge enables the believer to progress in life. And in light of these profound implications, Paul stops to ask an important rhetorical question in verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, if we really get it, this is a frightening place to be. It should really concern. It should concern us and alarm us. I proclaim a message that will lead to and serve as the condemnation of the lost. Those who reject that fragrant odor and say, I don't want any of that. I don't want this message of Christ crucified and risen. I am to such people. The smell of death. And to others, the smell of life. Who among us is competent for this? Who is sufficient to wield such a powerful message? Well, what's the answer? And clearly, none of us. It's something I don't like to think about. And I think about proclaiming the gospel to individuals that I know are rejecting that gospel, that's a harsh thought. This is going to seal their fate in condemnation. I'm not sufficient for that. and I'm certainly not sufficient for taking the truth of the gospel and seeing someone respond to it in saving faith. This doesn't come from us. The answer is none of us is sufficient for this. However, I think contextually it's a yes and a no. I think what Paul is saying is we are sufficient for this. How is this the case? How can we be sufficient to wield such a powerful gospel? Notice chapter 3 and verse 4. Chapter 3 and verse 4, he will later say, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Never will we find in our own strength, in our own resources, the sufficiency to proclaim the gospel of Christ and make a difference in the lives of others. But there is a sufficiency from God that he sends, that he gives as a gift. And I think that is proven to be the meaning by verse 17, back to chapter 2. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. In other words, who is sufficient for these things? He now says, for... That is, it introduces the answer to the question raised. It assumes he's saying, we are. We are sufficient for this. Now, the sufficiency doesn't come from us, he'll clarify in chapter 3, but we are sufficient for this message. We're not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. That's a very negative idea. And it speaks of those who would pawn off a product for gain. Hucksters. Sometimes the word could almost mean adulterers, to adulterate what was being Uh, peddled. We don't do that with God's Word, he says. Now remember the context of the false teachers who are ridiculing Paul and saying he's not nearly eloquent enough and he doesn't have the wisdom of this age. We don't peddle God's Word. We don't try to sell it and make it seem nicer than it is or different than it is to change its nature in order for people to respond. God is the source of this truth, and the witness who discerns the sincerity of our message is God. We do not peddle his word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So, God is the source of this message. He is the one who discerns the sincerity with which we deliver it, and Christ is the encompassing element. In union with him, we proclaim that truth. Preaching that merely impresses people or intrigues them is not true preaching. It's peddling the Word of God. Now let me say, and when I say preaching, I don't mean just a formal pastor standing before a congregation, but as the New Testament uses the word, we're all preachers. We're all proclaimers of the gospel of Christ. And let me say, if this isn't clear, obvious to all of us, you do not need to labor to try to offend people. The offense should be the gospel. We should make it as fragrant as we can make it, but we cannot adulterate it and make it what it is not so that no one opposes it. Faithful witness does not have to strive to offend people. We simply hold out the fragrance of the gospel and that will offend some. Paul says, I rejoice in Christ. We don't peddle such a gospel. We are in the triumphant procession of Jesus Christ, who has won for himself people from all nations. And we go out proclaiming this message, a fragrance of some to death, a fragrance of others to life. We are not sufficient in ourselves, but as we carry the true, pure gospel of Christ, the sufficiency comes from God, and we walk in triumph as we influence this world for Him. If you are here today as one who does not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have not come to place your saving faith in Him. I'm not saying you don't know anything about it, but you have not come to be born again. If you come today here in that state, there is here a clear warning from God. The fragrance of the message of Christ crucified and risen has risen from this assembly today in song and in word. You have heard of Jesus crucified and risen to provide the forgiveness of your sin. You need to embrace that message. And I would suspect if you know that you have not, there's some reason for that. There's something you don't want to let go of. There's something you don't want to begin to do. Perhaps you are just absolutely scared to death to think of the implications, not even knowing what they are. The call of God is for you to simply respond in faith. You cannot try to figure everything out and get all things solved and worked out before. What you need to know is that you are a sinner. And that your condemnation is natural. It's not because you've done something worse than anyone else, but because by nature you are separated from God and His saving grace because of your sin. You have violated His word and His truth, and you have not brought glory to Him and have set up in His place many, many idols, some you probably don't even know about. But you must turn from that path. You must turn from that way and come to embrace Jesus Christ and all of His beauty. And let Him clean you up and take care of the details. But you have no other option. And whatever you're holding on to that keeps you from turning to Christ is killing you. Let it go. And embrace the gospel. For those of us who have done so, may we take from here today this great picture of walking in triumphal procession in Christ. Do we live daily with that perspective? we are the victors in Christ. There's a lot of things that go on in this world that really conflict with that message. And Paul is dealing with many of those things in his life. The anxieties, the trials, the resistance, the difficulties. But in faith he looks at the true vision and says, Jesus has won. I am part of that procession of victory that Christ has won at the cross. And I would say then, secondly, not only to see ourselves in this triumphant procession, but hone in here and listen clearly. We need to embrace our calling to structure our lives to directly serve God's sovereign purposes to save and transform sinners by faith in the gospel. Now, there's a natural objection that creeps in here. People say, well, that's just for pastors and missionaries. How can I give my whole life to the gospel and pour out my life in the service of Christ? You know, how we do this is going to look different for each one of us. And sometimes I think perhaps one of the largest battles is simply seeing life the way we need to see it. Sometimes we are pouring our lives into the salvation of the lost, and the building up of the church of Jesus Christ, and we don't really recognize it. We need to begin to live and think more purposefully, and to allow that to motivate our actions even more honorably. It will look different for each one of us. Our calling from God as His soldier in this cause will be different for you and for me. It will look different. We will do different things. But for each of us, such a life orientation will involve spending time and effort and resources to reach people with the gospel. Somehow, some way, taking on the pain of that project. It may be very clear for those who teach the Bible formally within the church that there is opportunity in this world to lead in Bible study those who are open to hearing the truth of Christ, are you seeking to do that? We have tools for you. We have encouragement for you. Are you seeking to lead somebody in Bible study to know God's truth, pointing someone more to the knowledge of Jesus? There is inviting others over to your home and into your influence. to Simply get to know them and to be the fragrance of Christ to them in common contact. I think on that point, some of you have huge advantages over me and my family because of the orientation and the calling that is upon our life. We talk for entire summers about getting a neighbor over to eat. Some of you, that's a lot easier to do because of your schedule and your orientation. Can we bring somebody into our influence, actively seeking to influence them for Jesus? There's children's outreach and many opportunities here this summer. There is the support of missionaries in various ways. There is bringing others to church. There is edifying the body of Christ. There is reaching out to one who is struggling in the faith and encouraging them forward. And again, sometimes you may have the most unique contact with such a person in this very church or in your circle of influence. Someone for whom the call of God is beginning to weaken. They're doubting their faith. They're pulling away from the people of God. And you're the person to reach out and connect with them. There are so many ways and so many opportunities, but what we need to do is care and to sit down and think and consider how is my life serving the cause of Jesus Christ? What is your orientation, Christian? Are all the trials and bumps in the road of life, are they all roadblocks to your comfort? Do they all disrupt your quest for a freedom from any setback? I wonder if the interview was done for us as Christians. And someone asked us about the trials of our life what are the things that really take up our attention and cause difficulty and things we're dealing with and what's on our mind? I wonder as Christians if in that interview, being honest, they would all be things about broken appliances and difficult relationships and things that just aren't working out in our life and my health and difficulties that I've faced. I wonder if any of those trials would have anything to do with the spread of the gospel of Christ. If our orientation is to spread the fragrance of God's glory and the gospel of Jesus, we will have our trials to be sure But they will be trials encountered on the path of ministry to others. Trials of anxiety, of exhaustion, of difficulty, and of deep disappointment. I hope that you love others enough to be deeply disappointed when there is not glory brought to God I think this so affects our relationship as a church as well. There's an orientation to the assembly of believers that partners together in this cause, that shares together the war stories of disappointment and anxiety, lack of resources, how this could be done better and how we could reach such a person better. The other orientation I fear often is that the church just gets added to all the things in life that disappoint our perfect goals. Where are you at? The household of God was not purchased by Jesus so that believers might waste their days chasing the dream of a worry-free life. The church is called to structure her life as a community so that her members live as responsible partners in God's sovereign purpose to save and to transform sinners by faith. Those who live by faith, and thus honor this stewardship, prioritize the making of disciples, and see themselves as the fragrance of Christ in this fallen world, and understand that they walk in victorious procession in Jesus Christ. May that be all of us. I preach to myself, as I preach to all of us as a church. What is our orientation? At stake for the lost is eternal salvation. And I would suspect that one second in eternity, all of the things that we think are such big problems will be gone. We must realize that eternal salvation is at stake for the lost, and at stake for us is the very life the gospel intends to secure in us and through us. A life oriented towards spreading the glory of God in the world where he has placed us. Is that your orientation? Is it mine? May we say with Paul, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. May we spread it. Let's pray.